0: I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report, Finance Presenter on ABC News and a columnist for The New Daily.
1: And I'm Stephen Mayne, contributor at Eureka, founder of Crikey, shareholder, activist and city of Manningham, councillor, and And we are are the Money Money Cafe. Cafe. we're not in our usual spot.
0: Unfortunately, a group of uh, teenagers have taken
1: over our usual spot. Swinburne students. Are they? None of them voted for Josh, I'm guessing. I'm saying none of them voted. None of them voted. They're that young.
0: Okay. Well, I think so. Anyway, but anyway, we're a couple of noisy. old, grumpy old so men who've gone who on our so, favourite table. We're sorry that the background noise is a little louder than normal this week, but um, that's because uh, we've been supplanted by a bunch of teenagers.
1: And this is our first time the cafe's been in the cafe for three editions, I think, with you. Is that right? You've been crook. There's been yeah, yeah, online right. stuff, and so let's get into it, Alvin. Okay. Well, so uh, what do you think of the uh,
0: Albanese cabinet, Stephen?
1: Look, I, I think it's the strongest incoming cabinet for a change of government since the Hawke cabinet in 83, but has the added advantage of a bit more ministerial experience. So 12 of them have served in previous ministerial roles of the 23 uh, in cabinet. Um, I do worry about the lack of diversity. You know, only two of them have ever run a business. Uh, Tony Burke. They're the most they, – they're claiming to be the most diverse I know. diverse cabinet in history. So I'm being ironic in they saying that 10 of them – are the essence
0: of diverse. 10, diversity. Of them,
1: 10 of them have union backgrounds, 13 of them have been political staffers, and only two of them have run businesses, and one of them is 68-year-old factional godfather, you, Don you, Farrell, you, who you, ran a winery for two years. You said – if I may
0: say, you set a high bar for diversity, Stephen –
1: I love, the, I love the actual diversity, but I just don't like groupthink. They're all Labor. They're all left. I worry for the economy. But they are a smart group. They're political professionals. Hopefully, they'll govern in an orderly manner from the sensible centre.
0: You're the sort of radical that would like to see Teal independence in Cabinet, I, want, I would say.
1: I want Dr Monique Ryan, the new member for Kuyong, where we are sitting. I would love her to be the health minister, for instance, or the assistant health minister. So break down this two-party rubbish and reach across the aisle and put together the best cabinet that the parliament can, can provide. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the revolt
0: in the Labor Party if they didn't get all the jobs? Well, I they're, mean, they're so because collectivist. Being in government is is all about getting a
1: job? I know they're so collectivist. It's all about make-work schemes for the for the comrades, they won't give up the speaker to, Peter, to to Andrew Wilkie, which they should do. You don't think they will? No, because they've got 77, so some factional bother boy will say, I want the $200,000 pay rise, I'm in the faction, you owe me a favour, make me the hopeless speaker, and Andrew Wilkie can sit on the backbench or the crossbench. Yes. So we need governments that break down all this, you know, if someone crosses the floor and, and votes for Andrew Wilkie as speaker, they're expelled from the Labor Party. I mean, they're so... Strict in their collectivist loyalty thinking, that I think it often works against them. Anyway, it's a good, yes. strong cabinet. I think they'll they'll do well, but the economy could crater, and that's their biggest risk. What do you think? Oh, absolutely,
0: absolutely, that's a risk. I mean, I, I don't think the economy will crater, but it'll certainly slow down. I, if the economy craters, it's because either the Reserve Bank's made a big mistake, which I think is unlikely, or the entire world economy craters uh, in which case yeah well yeah, you know.
1: so we're not going to be Sri Lanka no matter what unless there's World War three and there's some massive blob I, I agree that we're with our dowry with our lucky natural advantages you, we can't stuff up I mean
0: it is interesting that we got the GDP numbers this week on Wednesday morning from the ABS oh crikey, they <laughs> keep going Alan soldier yes. on soldier on yeah, so we we got the GDP numbers, uh, which were quite good, you know, 0.8%, which was higher than the market had pencilled in. Uh, solid uh, increase in GDP for the quarter after a 3.4% rise in the December quarter. Uh, you know, you might have expected a bit of a give back after that, but in fact it was pretty good. Uh, but poor old Jim Chalmers had to get up and try to say it was terrible because that's what he always does. You know, like the incoming Treasurer always says, Things are worse than we thought, you know. Oh, but he got it, well, it wrong. Is us, he, it's that's terrible. what you do with but, the you know, budget.
1: You don't do it with the GDP figures. You do it with the budget. Yeah, like, well, he, he, felt he, the, he felt obliged to do it with GDP numbers, which, you know, come on. The Morrison government had sod all impact on those GDP numbers. Sod all impact. I mean, you know, commodity prices, Russian wars, COVID, supply chains. You can't blame Josh and Morrison for the GDP figures and they weren't that bad anyway. So what was Chalmers doing?
0: Yeah he was it was it was it was silly politics he was jerking his
1: knee just like peter Dutton coming out and saying well they'll will be a bad government for sure so in 2025 we're going to kick out this bad labor government in his opening press conference it's only been a week peter surely your attitude should be i hope they're a good government for the for the good of the country but if they're a bad government, government we we'll, will hold them we'll, accountable we'll, we'll be a viable opposition but exactly i hope they're a great successful government for the country we'll see what happens. These politicians just so sick of the two-party system. I'm sick of them, yes. More teals. I More say. teals. More we're teals. In fact, let's have all teals. All teals. All teals. In fact, I reckon what's going to happen, the teals are making noises about running, running in the upcoming Victorian election in 175 days. Yeah, but they're not going to do that, are they? Well, they may. If Albo doesn't put them to work and make them feel useful, they may sit there and say, well, if we're going to be treated like rubbish no, no but it won't the be the same teals lesson. like it won't be the same it'll be other teals yeah it? but they could the, these teals they're such giant killers they could form a, comi- a committee and if if they any candidate who comes out wearing teal colors saying i'm endorsed by the teals you know zali yeah. blah, blah, they'll get elected yeah for sure any any seat so labor and liberal wake up to yourselves keep these teals busy use them cuz i you know what i reckon they want to knock off a few state libs. They want to knock off Matthew Guy, who's the Liberal leader in Victoria in my seat. And I'm saying, no, leave him alone. He's a good guy. You know, he's a moderate. Hey, hey do you reckon if, if the Teals got 76 seats, right? If, if oh, they'd they, share they, if power they did. sure. They would share power if, with if Labor. Would, no, they'd but they'd appoint, but Labor. They'd be
0: very generous to Labor. But they'd appoint the Prime Minister, wouldn't they? They would. That's when
1: Monique Ryan would be Prime Minister. Yeah. If, um, well, uh, if she's the got, Teals got she's 76 She's got a better seats. show than Craig Kelly of being Prime Minister, I think. So the Teals could get to that 30. That is not, that is not saying to, much, Stephen. The Teals could get to 35 in the next parliament. I mean, this, this is such a phenomenon. People are so sick of the two-party system. If Labor doesn't embrace them, we could get Teals, a crossbench of 30 next time, and then you start opening up big, broad coalitions. and. Te- Wouldn't it be chaos, teals? Stephen? It would be chaos. That's what they say, mate. That's the old duopoly trying to stop competition and startups entering and energising our political system, which is what these teals have done. Yes. Now, what about power prices? I saw on the news last night you had a couple of graphs saying um, gas and and electricity is up four times because of Ukraine.
0: Well, it's partly because of Ukraine.
1: (laughs) I was possibly possibly
0: over-egged that a bit, um, oversimplified. I did get some emails this morning from people saying, you know, it's not just Ukraine, Alan. Come on. It's um, also the fact that the coal, the coal-fired power stations are, um, are closing down all the time.
1: They they're uh, having unplanned uh, outages. Yeah, but everyone in this debate just talks their own book. So the the greenies are all saying we haven't invested in enough renewables, and all the coal plants are breaking down, well, they are and they're all bad down. and hopeless. And the, the the fossils are all saying we should have invested in more coal. We shouldn't have killed coal, and they're not. We're not investing in them, so they're failing. And the honest truth is always a combination of everything. And um, the, the number well, one reason is that the coal price has gone through the roof. That's right, absolutely gone through the roof because and of Ukraine. Yeah, because of Ukraine. I heard, and, I saw that on the ABC News last yeah, night. Yeah, and it was correct. Yeah. So you're, you're overall you're correct, but if there had been more investment in renewables in Australia, we wouldn't be copping it as badly right now with the gas price and the yes. and the power price. And then I love, I love uh, Origin. So they should be booming, right, because of oil and gas prices, but they're not because they can't get any coal for their araring coal-fired power station. So they're having to buy it on the, black, on, the, on the spot market and they've had a profit warning when they should be booming.
0: Well, in fact, they abandoned their guidance. They did. They've, they've shrugged their shoulders. They've, got, they've said, we've got no idea what's going to happen, everybody.
1: And the stock got knocked off 14%. Bang. And, and they're so different from AGL because AGL, particularly in Victoria, they run brown coal. And the only use for brown coal is, because it's so dirty, it's full of water, is to do power. So there's no, you can't export it either. So Loyang A, the 2,000 megawatt, is a totally different story to a And AGL should be making a fortune out of Loyang A right now because spot prices are so high. But one of the units is off. So 500 meg's is out of action, and they've probably locked up the rest in contracts. So they're not benefiting enough from this soaring electricity spot price at the moment.
0: Uh, well, AGL's in complete chaos and you know uh, uh, destruction at the moment. They, AGL's got uh, AGL's sitting there like a shag on
1: a rock. But is it no plan, no leadership? Yes, but is it really as chaotic? Like, Chanticleer, not not the Money Café Chanticleer, the other one, Tony Boyd, declared this week that Mike Cannon-Brooks was the most successful corporate raider ever because he'd stopped this demerger with 11%. And I read that and I thought, he's not even on the board. He has no power at all. He's just run a political campaign of the bleeding obvious, this is a silly idea, don't do it, don't do the demerger, until you've got to deal with the Victorian government on, on contamination and clean-up costs on Yang Power Station, which is the number one liability within the dirty, belching fossil division. Um, and I reckon that Cannonbrooks he's asked for two board seats. He'll only get one max. I mean, no one's going to give him two board seats just because he's a, a celebrity billionaire who does a lot of tweeting. I mean, come on. So they've got to pick new directors and apparently they're coming out of the woodworks, all the directors club types. Yes, I'm clean and green. Yes, I can turn around AGL. So they'll appoint a new chair, three new directors and then once they do a deal with the Victorian government, someone will take them over, but not before then. And that shouldn't happen before the Victorian election. So everyone should just settle down, keep the company together, find some new directors. Stephen Main has spoken, everybody. Everyone should just settle down. <laughs> Stop. Just settle down, everyone. I think that's great. Now, finally, let's do house prices because you had another graph on the news last night basically saying that they peaked in April because they came off a little bit in May. So you've called the top. You've called the top for house prices, which is $10 trillion in April 2022.
0: I I did say in, in my little presentation on the news that there is no such thing as a national housing market. There is cities and towns and suburbs... Um, and they're all different. So, for example, as I pointed out, the Sydney median price fell by 1% in May. So, what? Adelaide prices went up by 1.8%, and Brisbane is up 1%. So,
1: uh, it's all over the place, actually. And Melbourne prices are falling as well. So, you know, my favourite stat for this being a crazy bubble? The Andrews government, which has bankrupted Victoria and has 200 billion dollars of debt and doesn't have any mining royalties to save them, like Queensland and WA does, they budgeted to generate 6.2 billion dollars in stamp duty in 2122, and they've revised that to 10 billion. So the housing bubble is so crazy that they're going to get four billion of unexpected stamp duty revenue in this year, and then it's going to drop back to seven billion. Yeah, but that might be wrong. Well, this was this was halfway through the year, so they were already oh, tracking massively right. ahead. Um, and I think, yeah, if if the house price, if there was an index that said, well, it's, it's peaked at ten trillion, I reckon it's going to go to nine trillion. So I reckon it's it's run up from six to ten since COVID, and I think it's going to drop ten percent. I reckon. What do you reckon? Yeah,
0: that sounds. 10 or 15, I'd say. And that would be sensible because it's just ridiculous. But everyone says that. Every every pet shop galara is saying that. At
1: at City of Manningham, we've just jacked up our average residential valuations by 18%. So the average house now in the City of Manningham is worth $1.23 A million, sorry. And I used to say to people, mate, we give you great value, 100 services, and you'd have to live 500 years before you paid the value of your house in rates. You know what the figure is now? You'd have to live 674 years before you paid the value of your house in rates, because unlike with land tax and stamp duty, we index it. We lower the cents and the dollar tax on rates, whereas the state, as you just can hear what? with that stamp duty figure, they just scoop up all the revenue from the bubble. What a council you are, honestly! Well, it's capped by the I state mean, government. Really, they don't it trust us. Is so it's it's the law the par- that we have to do
0: this. Paragons of of uh, local council excellence, if I may say.
1: And we hey, still have way, $90 million, million
0: that, in the bank. Do you know that um, Narrabeen on Sydney's North Shore, the house prices have already fallen 10%. Because
1: they were falling into the cliff and falling into the sea? So no, the, no. The it's climate just, change? It's
0: just, it's just further along the p- point that I'm making, which is that... It's a teal crash. There's a, there, no, no. There's just like... There's a million or thousands of different housing markets. There's not one housing market. They're all different.
1: This is true. Now, we better get into questions. Yes. Kylie opens up. Thanks for the podcast. I've learned so much listening once a week, although I'm still listening more than once trying to catch up on older episodes whilst on a morning walk down here in Albany, Western Australia.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I'm sure the walks, Kylie, I'm sure the walks are... Absolutely beautiful.
1: Can, can you let me ask there? the question before you interrupt? I haven't even got to, oh, to totally Kylie's okay, this okay. question yet. We hear how much debt Australia is in and how much more debt was racked up trying to stimulate the economy from the start of the pandemic. But can you please explain who Australia owes this debt to? I'm sure I could Google this, but would prefer your explanation. There you go.
0: Uh, who do we okay. owe this trillion dollars of debt to? Well, So what happens is, is a body called the Australian Office of Financial Management, AOFM, uh, every week has an auction of government bonds, which are IOUs. It's
1: every day, mate. No, no, it's about twice a week. It's not every every day. It's very often. Once once
0: or twice a week they have an auction of $1 or $2 billion worth of uh, government IOUs, and they sell them to the highest bidders. And uh, the
1: highest bidders are banks and super funds. Pension funds, sovereign funds, fund managers. Yeah. I mean, a good example, QBE... Has 29 billion of funds under management, and 25% of that is in government bonds. So QBE's got seven billion of government bonds. I reckon probably half would be in Australia. So they would owe the government. The government would owe QBE three and a half billion. And another uh, owner of the bonds, not the, they don't buy them
0: off the government. Uh, they buy them off people who have bought them off the government. Is the Reserve Bank, who owns, which owns 350 billion dollars worth of correct. Government so our debt.
1: largest shareholder or our largest lender, if they ever wanted to pull the plug, is ourselves through the Reserve Bank courtesy of Money Printing and we are less transparent than the US because in the US you you, you get told if you google that Japanese investors are the biggest holders of US bonds at 1.3 trillion followed by China at 1 trillion and Australian investors own 57 billion US dollars worth of US bonds. Here all we know is that 42% are owned by Australians and 51.5% are unidentified because the beneficial owners are hiding behind custody firms. So we don't have – but it will just be institutional investors all over the world. Um, yes. Yeah, and no one's going to take us over. It, it's fully diversified. It's it's not a worry, Kylie. So enjoy your walk in Albany. No one's about to default and pull the plug on Australia, courtesy of – No, they're not. Correct. Second uh, question. Graham
0: says, uh, would be very interested in your guys op- you guys' opinion on what you think might be the direction of AGL shares – depending on the outcome of the demerger vote next month. Stephen's predictions on AGL have been remarkably accurate so far. And there's another bloke. Frank says... Oh, that's um, very long. All right. All right. I won't read that, but we can we deal can with it. We can deal
1: with it, yes. So go on. Well, what? I think... that I mean, the stock's at 870 now, so it's got a market cap of $6 billion. It's a long way from $25 a share. I think that... The demerge is not going to happen. We need to stabilise the business and get some new directors. And then the 4 million customers are a very valuable thing, but the poison pill in the business is the clean-up costs of dirty, expensive, old clunkers like Loy Yang. So I would wait until there's a deal with the Victorian Government and an agreed timetable on the closure of Loy Yang, and then I think it will be taken over because the board have given up so four of the six directors have, have basically quit um, and they have got no credibility. The company has no credibility to raise capital. So I think you just need to see who are the new directors. Is Canon Brooks going to make a bid? Is he given one or two directors? Have the AGM in October to sort the board. And then I think, I, I predict it'll be taken over by a Macquarie or someone like that after they've reached a, a deal on clean-up costs with the Victorian government, which will come after the Victorian election.
0: Uh, I don't have much to add to that, except to say that the main asset, the liability, is the lawyer Yang clean up. The main asset is the four and a half million sh- um, customers, which um, uh, what's his name, Michael Cannon Brooks wants to use, or at least to make make use of, uh, to create a um, sort of a, a, a what's called a retail distribution network, a platform for uh, uh, rooftop solar to be used as a a virtual power factory, and I you know maybe that'll work, but the thing is, it's all a bit desperate, to be honest. I mean, I, I reckon this is a this is an industry, a company, and an industry that has been disrupted.
1: and uh, I'd say a million miles away from it. And this is the most politicised or public interest takeover battle I can remember since Robert Holmes court tried to buy BHP and Campbell Soup took control of Arnott's. It's not often that you get people in the street stopping you to discuss a corporate control situation, but the public interest in AGL has really surprised me, and it's the first carbon-related board coup we've seen with an ASX100 company where a couple of old fossils from the fossil fuel industry had a bad strategy which didn't work for shareholders, and they have now resigned after their strategy was proven to be... A failure, and they should never have tried the demerger, which was just driven by their investment banks chasing a fee. And they've wasted 160 million on it, but at least they haven't wasted the full 260 million if they'd gone all the way. Very good. Okay, your turn, Hamish. I don't usually like sweeping market statements because who knows at the end of the day. But I will say that the market feels like it's a pretty desperate times at the moment. It's down what 25 to 35 percent since its highs. I won't go into detail, but with everyone kind of scared and pulling money out of the share market, it feels like a good time to put some in. What do you reckon? Is now a good time to put some into the share market?
0: Oh, God, I would never say... I would never tell anyone to do that. Well, uh... Yeah. It's, um... Look, uh... uh, market's not our market's not down by 25 35%. No, it's come Let's, back a bit
1: since since
0: then. Yeah. I, no, I, but, it, but our market's down about 10 I think.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. So Hamish, I'd wait for another 10% fall. I've sold eight stocks over the past week for a total of $3,000, reducing my portfolio to 30,000 shares across 375 holdings or an average holding of $81 each. So I think it's going to fall and there'll be a chance to buy back in at 10 15% lower in the weeks and months ahead. That's just, you know, I'm just feeling a bit pessimistic. I don't know, new government, rising so, interest rates, inflation, I'm just a bit uncomfortable.
0: The only thing I'd say to that, Stephen, is you wouldn't have a clue, really. I don't. I mean... Uh, no one has a clue. No one has a clue. Nobody knows. But uh, it, it does look like interest rates are going to keep rising for a while. So uh, when interest rates are rising, it's hard, to, it's hard to make money in shares.
1: Yeah, and we haven't dealt with inflation for 25 years. So yeah. I'm nervous about how businesses are going to cope with inflation. I mean, if even Origin's copping a profit warning in an oil and boom, you know. I mean, And the other thing is, uh, Hamish, P.E. ratios are not that low. In fact,
0: they're still elevated. Yes. They are not uh, low, as low as they've been in 10 years. That isn't right.
1: Because interest rates are still, on world terms, ridiculously low. So, yeah, and well, that drives the P.E. And P.E. ratios are still quite high. They've come
0: back, of course, but not that much. Okay. Jenny says, am I correct in thinking that unexercised options have no dilutive effect as opposed to unexercised rights issues which are then taken up by other shareholders? If this is so, then if a share share is trading marginally below the option price, is there any advantage to taking up the options over buying shares on the market? Stephen.
1: Well, look, Jenny, if the options are trading, if the the option price is higher than the market price, do not go near it with a barge pole. If it's in the money, i.e. the option strike price is below the market price, well then you probably should take them up or look if you can sell the options on market. But the worst thing you can do if you hold options is allow them to lapse when they're in the money. Now you've mentioned um, sort of dilutive issues with, uh, with rights issues or entitlement offers. Options can be open for five years but rights issues are only open for three weeks you've got to make a decision there and then are you going to take up this issue or not and and they can be dilutive um, and you should take them up when they're in the money and hopefully it's structured so you get compensation if you don't take them up but the other thing is with takeovers takeovers was when you offer often crystallize the dilution because all the LTIs and the options are paid out So you might think you're buying a business for a billion and all of a sudden you're buying it for a billion plus 50 million because you've had to pay out all the option holders and all the incentive grants and stuff. So they all can be dilutive, but they are very different. And thankfully, retail shareholders don't really have to deal with options much these days, just rights rights issues. and But I would say
0: also that for retail, ordinary individual shareholders, dilution is irrelevant. I mean, all that matters is the price of your share. If you're... If you're a big shareholder, if you own ten or twenty percent, dilution
1: matters. I'm going to totally disagree with that, Alan, because if a company like Cochlear comes out in the, in the middle of COVID and does a eight hundred eighty million dollar placement at one hundred and forty, when the stock's at one hundred and eighty, all sixty thousand retail shareholders have been diluted, and hundreds of millions of dollars have been gifted to the big end of town, is those who got on the cheap placement. Yeah, but that's about the price, not about the issue. Yeah.
0: If the if the if the price is Okay, there's no dilution.
1: Yeah, correct, if the price is okay. But but placements are usually discounted by 10%, so yeah. you're getting diluted. That's why we always support, on this cafe show, Patrio pro-rata we renounceable do. capital raisings, which Indeed. treat all shareholders equally and no one gets diluted. Indeed we do, exactly. Now, Ian says, Two or three years ago, if my Alan Kohler bingo card did not have the valley of death on it, I'd have thrown it in the bin. We don't hear you say that at all these days, Alan. With markets throwing a wee tantrum and interest rates going up, is that dreaded valley not busier than it has ever been?
0: What's an Alan Cole, a bingo card?
1: That's what I want to know. Do, I don't know. Is it a good tip from Alan? I don't know. Uh,
0: the valley of death um, refers to the period uh, uh, in the life of a startup after they get going... Um, and then they have to um, uh, they have to turn their business into a commercial venture. Um, and there's usually a year or two where they've um, uh, they've started, they're operating, they're making some revenue, but their costs are greater than their revenue, and they're losing money, cash flowing out the door, and it's hard to raise at that point.
1: Uh, and so a lot of companies that's when a lot of companies go broke. And so that one, is. And OneTel never made it. Out of the Valley of Death, they never made a profit and no. lost over a billion dollars. Whereas Afterpay never made a profit but sold themselves for tens of billions of dollars, so they got through the Valley of Death by selling themselves to some other overhyped. Yeah, US so I, I've invested in a couple of startups that didn't make it out of the Valley of Death. And um, Vivid Technology was it not not a good one for you? Was it you dropped 50k on that one? Which one? Vivid Technology in the Valley of Death. That's right. So they fell over in the Valley of Death. Another one. Um,
0: Oh, it's too painful. I can't yeah, talk don't about mention it.
1: it. Your wife listens to this, doesn't she? You'll get in trouble if you mention it again. Oh, well, happily, my wife doesn't listen to Money Cafe. Actually, nor does my wife. I'm lucky too. Hello, darling. Um, now, so, my favourite Valley of Death story is the uranium miner Paladin, which has just gone through a 20 year Valley of Death, having lost $2.1 billion in accumulated losses over 20 years trying to get the Namibian uranium mine going. And all of a sudden, the Chinese are backing them, the uranium prices spiked, they're reopening the mothballed mine, and the company now has a market cap of $2.36 billion, and the stock's gone from $0.12 cents to $0.73 cents in eight months. So that is the longest valley of death survivor I can think of. What an excellent story, Stephen. That's great. That's what we're here for, Alan. Now, Warren's got one.
0: Uh, Stephen Maynard has twice mentioned his idea, not sure how tongue-in-cheek it was, that the government could buy Transurban and remove all its tolls or something along those lines. Alan let that one go through to the keeper, but I'd be interested in hearing Alan's honest assessment of this wacky but appealing idea, even if they kept the tolls in place but had the profits going into government revenue and did away with the contracted future CPI increases And it would be more palatable to drivers.
1: Yeah, look, I wasn't ever saying abolish the tolls. He wants to know what I think, not what you think. Yeah, go for it
0: then, mate. Okay, so there's two issues here. One is uh, who are the best owners of infrastructure? Is it the government or private uh, investors? And the second uh, question is what's the best way to tax people? Is it through tolls or income taxes? And um, uh, the question, of course, is, of course... Governments are better owners of infrastructure because their cost of funds is so much lower. So, in my view, they should be owning all of the infrastructure. um, They should never have uh, given the bloody toll roads to Transurban
1: in the first place. Correct, because Transurban owns all of the toll roads in Australia, with the exception of the uh, Sydney Harbour Tunnel and Eastlink in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. They've got an effective monopoly in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane and their shares floated at $1, and they're now trading at $15. They've created tens of billions of value for their shareholders by ripping off government after government by taking a long-term view where they say, give us another 10 years on our concession to 2040 to 2050, well beyond when all those politicians who do the deals will be dead. And in exchange, we'll build you a new three or five billion dollar road now, and you can cut the ribbon and look like a genius. And they keep doing it; they keep ripping off governments. And Victorian motorists are now paying nine hundred million a year to drive up and down a ridiculously overpriced toll road that should be owned by the public and should be tolled modestly, not to the extent that those monopolists are Yeah, and the reason for the
0: tolls us. is because it's a form of taxation if the government yeah. owns it, and. Um, uh, but it shouldn't be too high
1: because tolls are um, flat, are a flat tax, yeah, and they're good for traffic affects... flow. If you made them free, it'd be gridlock. So exactly. you, you you price it to get optimal usage for efficiency Precisely, of the transport. System. Exactly. Anyway, look, my my idea is that Chris Chris Kenny on Sky made an interesting comment last night. He said the government what are you has doing a mandate. I know, I know. I, I was having Have a bad day. I was better, having a do? bad day, but, no, he said that the government has a mandate to do anything that they haven't promised not to do. Now, they have not promised not to buy Transurban, so they have a mandate to buy Transurban under that criteria. So, Albo, you heard it here first, 60 billion nationalised Transurban, cut the tolls, and you'll get a second term easily. Andrew says, how does an EDF index fund track whatever index without being influenced by trading behaviour? If there's an ASX200 ETF and the ASX200 goes down by 5%, what stops the ETF price from going up if people start buying it at a price 5% higher? Uh,
0: Well, so the thing about ETFs is that they adjust the shares on issue according to demand and supply or demand by by investors. And so ETFs actually do always track the index. They do not rise and fall according to the demand or lack of it from investors, whereas a listed investment company, which has a fixed number of uh, units or shares on issue, can trade at a premium or a discount to the net asset value according to whether uh, there's a lot of demand uh, for the stock or not. Um, But uh, the ETFs, uh, if there's more demand for the stock, they issue more of them. Uh, And if the demand is not there, they uh, they, get, they, they reduce the number of shares on stock. So they actually do, ETFs do precisely track whatever index they are following.
1: Well said, Alan. Now, we're going to do one more because we're running out of time. And this is Richard saying, thanks for the podcast. Um, Stephen predicted that Greg Hunt would get a seat on the board at CSL. Whether or not you think Hunt has done a great job as health minister, it's fair to say that in the last two COVID years, the decisions he has made have resulted in a massive transfer of wealth from Australian taxpayers to the pharma companies, including CSL. Millions of masks, tests and jabs are not free. Are you not concerned by the conflict of interest and potential for corruption when a minister can set up his next lucrative job, as you predict? Now, Richard, CSL is worth $130 billion. None of that value has anything to do with any decision Greg Hunt made. So he has not done what Michael Wooldridge did shortly before he retired from the parliament when he gave a $5 million grant to the Royal College of General Practitioners just seven days before the 2001 election. And then just weeks after he retired, this same organisation hired Wooldridge as a consultant and he was eventually paid $382,000 in an unfair dismissal claim and collected about 600,000 in total. So there's many examples of politicians... Well, that's astonishing.
0: Take... I didn't know that, Stephen. Yeah, it's true. Why
1: wasn't I told? This is not, many this is not good enough. Many politicians take on jobs shortly after leaving. Larry Anthony went from being the children's minister to the board of ABC Learning. Bob Carr jumped straight into the warm embrace of Macquarie Bank on half a million. Helen Coonan joined the Crown Board within weeks of retiring from the Senate after being James Packer's favourite communications minister. Greg Hunt, if he only takes on a directorship at CSL, this is much better than becoming a lobbyist, for instance, being a professional director. So I do hope that CSL gives him the job because I do think he'd be excellent. They have to have two-thirds of their directors as Australian citizens. They've already got two foreigners there. They've got four women and three men on the board. The gender balance is good. Get him on there, Brian McNamee. Get Greg Hunt on the CSL board. He's a good man.
0: Um, I'm not sure I totally agree with you there, Stephen. Stephen.
1: Well, that's your right, say. Alan. You can you can tell me I'm an idiot as much as you like. So, um, well, I think I, we're done.
0: We are done. That's it. Thanks everyone for listening to today's Money Cafe with Stephen Main and me, Alan Kohler, editor in chief of Eureka Report, etc. And um, if you've got any questions, send them into the Money Cafe at eureka And I'll be back next week with James Thompson from the Financial Review. So uh, that's it for me. I'm
1: All those things that you mentioned and who you are. I'm Stephen May, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we'll see you in a fortnight. See you in a fortnight.